This is the word of God. And when he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he give us understanding and give us the answer to who Jesus is. And may we hear, believe, and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, the whole city was stirred up in Jerusalem. That had happened before uh, the whole city had been stirred up. And uh, here it's all stirred up because of who's just arrived. The Lord Jesus riding on a donkey and people using messianic language. That, that hubbub just stirs up the whole city. There was a stirring yesterday in my neighborhood. I heard fire trucks and sirens and they seemed at a distance. And then they got a little closer. They got a little closer. So I leapt. You can picture this. I leapt from my chair to the door to see what was the matter. And sure enough, the fire truck was coming down our street. And in one of the vehicles, there was somebody in a bunny suit. They were not coming to a fire in my neighborhood. They were driving around this costumed character for the neighborhood kids to see. But when there's a, a stirring, everybody wants to know what's going on and, and why. Why all the hubbub? And I'm not going into the guy in the costume. The people in Jerusalem asked a very legitimate question. What's the tumult? What's the, what's the big deal? Who is this? The crowds, the adherents, perhaps many of them from Galilee, lovers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, had answered in their proclamation, uh, Hosanna, to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But as the crowds gathered and witnessed this, the crowds, the man on the street is asking, and here's this answer. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. That's the Nazarene guy. They want to know who it is and why it's a big deal. That's an important question for all of us. That's an important question for the year 2021. It's an important question for today. I suppose if we're talking about questions, we could get philosophical and say, what's the biggest question that faces man? Philosophy kind of centers on that question. Who am I? Uh, what am I in the world? What is the world about? It's usually a man-centered question that dominates the thinking of the social sciences. And typically dominates our thinking as we grow through the different seasons of life. Who am I? What am I? Where am I going? But it's interesting that in addition to answering that, the Bible focuses on a different question. The question of our text today. Who is Jesus? Or we could broaden it and say, who is God? God has made himself known in his word. And so we're going to take that question of the crowd today and bring biblical answers to bear. And uh, we're going to go to a few different places in the Bible. As I said, we'll be turning quite a bit. And you can always get the recording and listen again. Because I think one of the most important things for you and for me is to know the right answer of who this Jesus is. Why is it such a big deal that people waved their palms and welcomed him and still today people will live and die for him? If you don't have the right answer, or if you simply view him as someone in a costume driving by and dismiss him, 
Woe to you when you face your maker on your last day. It is vital to know who Jesus is. The person of Jesus and his life are the key to Christianity. We've already heard the crowd's answer and the crowd on Palm Sunday ascribed to him uh, the line of David. He's the messianic kingly figure that came. We'll, We'll have more to say about that in a little bit. But let's start where the crowd starts. Let's start there and then we'll move on and I'll explain as we go along. Let's start, start with Jesus, the, uh, the prophet, the one from Galilee, the prophet, the one who has been talking, the one who's been teaching, the one who's been speaking, and it's been pretty neat. They've heard what Jesus had said. And so, and because it's spiritual and it's about the Lord, uh, their God, they call him a prophet. But the most common name for Jesus among those who see him and interact with him in the world when he was here is teacher. So let's start there. It's still under the, the, the broad umbrella of the word of God and one who brings the word of God, but teacher, uh, didaskalos, uh, which is related to didactic and teaching. And it's not the same word exactly as rabbi, but it's very similar. And a similar role in Israel, the teacher. Jesus is called teacher over 50 times in the New Testament because that's what people saw and heard. You're bringing us a message. In Matthew 10, Jesus himself said this, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they, had, if they had called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much will they more will they malign those of the household? Jesus connects with his disciples as a teacher. He, he embraces that. But he also warns them that how the teacher gets treated is how the disciples are going to get treated. Earlier, when someone was observing Jesus' teaching, Matthew 7 records this observation. When Jesus finished these sayings, The crowds, that means more than one, a great number of people, were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. That's the big deal. Here's a teacher, but he's not your run-of-the-mill teacher. They noticed that. And so that's probably why when they want to bump up calling him teacher, they bump up to prophet. Uh, There's something powerful. And and prophet in the Old Testament, you're thinking Elijah, Elisha. Some of the powers, the miracles are usually grouped around the lives of the prophets. And they said, this this must be a prophet. And perhaps some in Israel knew the prophecy from Deuteronomy 18. We've mentioned it over the years here because it's important to know there is a prophecy that the Lord spoke about Moses and said this. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, says Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So Jesus is a teacher, and yes, Jesus is a prophet. And he fulfills that. He is the greater than Moses. Some see Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount as giving the new law for Christians to understand. Just as Moses went on Mount Sinai and brought down the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial laws and the civil laws, Jesus brings out the heart of the moral law in the, ten, in the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is indeed the greater than Moses. 
But he is more than just another prophet. Hold on, we're keeping ascending. It's like climbing upstairs and and seeing new vistas before you. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. You need to see these verses for yourselves. After the Gospels and several of the letters, you'll come to a large book, uh, the book of Hebrews. We don't know the author. Um, We have our guesses, but it doesn't matter. We know the author is the Holy Spirit of God, and it's been in the Bible from the beginning. And I might add, if you want to do extra homework on who Jesus is, in addition to reading the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, read the book of Hebrews. Because it's all about who Jesus is with Old Testament descriptors applied to him. The way Hebrews starts out, the first four verses connect with our theme today to identify who Jesus is. Not just another prophet, but the ultimate prophet. Hear what God's word says here. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power, by the word of his power, making purification for sins. He, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What an introduction. Jesus is a big deal, not just because he's a teacher or a prophet. He is the ultimate revelation of who God is. Let me just pause here in case you missed that. If someone you know says they're spiritual and they're seeking God, the best place to send them is to the person of Jesus. Because he is the the full radiance of the glory of God. That's what we believe about Jesus. Jesus, boys and girls, Jesus didn't just tell stories and parables and pat people on the head and hug children. Jesus is God come among us. And if you want to know God, you must know Jesus. I apologize. No, I don't apologize. I, I warn my neighbors. Who practice other religions and think there are other ways to know God. The Bible is clear. No one comes to God the Father but by Jesus Christ. Jesus made exclusive claims in his teachings. You think he's a teacher? A great moral, a source of morality? Listen to him. Read him. But will you heed him? Finally, under this point about Jesus speaking the words of God and making God known, we have to say this before we move on. From John chapter 1, verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. I said we'd be turning a little bit in our Bibles just to survey the answer the Bible gives as to who Jesus is. John 1, 1 is is a verse that all of us should know uh, And uh, be familiar with because it teaches not only that Jesus brought the word of God and made it known to us. It goes the final step. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. 
Logos. Jesus, the word of God, was God. Jesus is the incarnate living word. See, if you say Jesus was just a teacher and just a prophet, you then have to say, well, what do you think of what he teaches? What do you think of who he is? Jerusalem struggled with that question, and frankly, many got it wrong in the end. He came to his own, and his own received him not. Jesus taught something very difficult in John chapter 6. He said, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Not everybody liked what Jesus was teaching. So Matthew 6 continues, verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There are a lot of teachers in this world. There are a lot of books that you can buy and read. You can talk to people who are fanatics about their point of view and their understanding. But there's one Jesus. And he makes the Father known. And he tells you how you can be in a right relationship with your maker. And how you can find out who you are and what you are to do in this world. He can tell you all you need to know. Because he's God. He's the word of God. So again, I ask you, do you listen to him? Do you heed him as your teacher, as a prophet? Or is Jesus like that really big book you've bought that sits on your shelf unread? Listen to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Well, let's go on to answer the question who Jesus is from another angle. The crowds called him a teacher and got us on track with the prophet. But who did Jesus say he was? Let's, let's look at that for this second heading. Who did Jesus say he was? And before I get into the first point, let me just put in a little transition here. Because uh, it is important to hear who Jesus thinks he was. As the great Dutch theologian Her- Herman Bavink, I read a lot of Bavink this week and it was so good. Oh, so good. He said, Jesus was always highly self-conscious of his messianic role. And he spoke as an apocalyptic figure. He did his miracles and he took on divine prerogatives such as the forgiveness of sins. From the beginning, Jesus knew who he was. That is so important. Because, you know, liberal theologians and even moderns often remake Jesus. They dress him up in a costume and run him around the neighborhood as they think he's helpful. Many people in this uh, revisionist uh, stream sometimes make Jesus out to be, well, he was just a mere moral teacher. He set a good standard for us on how to love one another. And he, he got killed, but we should still follow his example. They reduce him to something else. And and these liberals and even your neighbors might say that, you know, the whole part about the cross and and born again and resurrection, it was just Paul and other Christians trying to fix 
what happened when Jesus got killed. You know, there are serious liberal scholars that say uh, Christianity as we know it was invented after Jesus died. I think the resurrection challenges that. Because Jesus is alive. We'll get to that next week. But we need to understand Jesus knew exactly who he was and he made that known to us. Any attempts to reduce the divinity of Jesus utterly fail to do justice with what Jesus said and did and taught. So let's first, uh, if we're going to ask this question, who Jesus is, what did he answer? Do you know what the most common title is? that he gave himself was, and I, I put it in the outline here as a, a meaningful moniker. A moniker is another word for a name, if you didn't know. You can surprise your friends with that big word. A moniker. What was Jesus' name that he used of himself, often speaking in the third person? You, you probably know it if you've read your Bible. Son of man. He'll often say something like, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He, he would speak of himself that way, and he had his purposes for doing that. So he uses this phrase, son of man, dozens and dozens of times for himself. Why would he pick that name? It's a biblical, indeed, it's a, it's a divine image from the book of Daniel. We won't turn back to Daniel chapter 7, but you can find it there. It talks about one like a son of man um, uh, with eternity. Um, it combines in one person both human and divine traits. It distinguishes mere human beings from God. So to claim to be the son of man was to claim to be something beyond a human being. To be eternal. To be the head of a, a new race of spiritual beings, if you will. The Son of Man. Jesus used the title, for instance, in Matthew 8, verse 20. And we're going to look at chapter 8 and then verse chapter 9. Jesus said to them, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, that's himself, had nowhere to lay his head. That was Jesus' favorite self-designation. But it points us to someone beyond a mere teacher, beyond a mere human being. You see, he would go on to do things as the Son of Man. He would show us that divine identity and his authority. Let's look at that, and we turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're not going to read much, but we're going to see it for yourselves in the Scriptures. Matthew, that Gospel, and chapter 9. As Jesus had been teaching, uh, a, a paralytic was brought to him. It's a great story um, that uh, people uh, tried uh, greatly to uh, get uh, people before Jesus. And uh, so people brought this man who was paralyzed in his whole body. And Jesus said to him, he says, your sins are forgiven. And some of the people present were laughing. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus doesn't come right out and say, I am God and I can forgive sins if I want to. He doesn't enter into that banter. He's on mission. He speaks in ways that serve us best. And so he said publicly, knowing what they were thinking, he says this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then 
he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the man is physically healed. Jesus wanted us to know that the Son of Man had the prerogatives of God. That the Son of Man could forgive sins. That the Son of Man, the title Jesus most often used for himself, was divine. He had authority. He should rightly be called Lord. And we could go on and talk about all the miracles he did that only buttress his divine power and its display. But we're trying to stay focused on the question of who Jesus is. His self-answer was Son of Man, which equates with Son of God, one with divine identity and authority, and it goes further. You see how we have a little progression even with each point. Well, how much further could it go? He has authority, but he has ultimate authority, and he has the final word. What do you mean the final word? When we get to the end. When we get to the end, there's judgment. And everything we're worried about, everything we think is wrong with the world, will get fixed. It will get judged and set right. For the believer, the judgment day is not a day you should fear. Let me take you where I'm going. John chapter 5, Jesus says some things about being not only the Son of God, but being the one who judges. Starting John 5, verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Capital S, he's talking about himself. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus is teaching in John chapter 5 that all judgment has been given to him. He's the son of man, the son of God. He will judge. The two great things that Jesus will do, he came to save. That's his first advent into the world. You often wondered why he didn't totally push back on Pontius Pilate. Why he didn't totally crush those lying Jewish men who kept trying to kill him and falsely accuse him. Why didn't he just crush them? His mission was to be savior. And at his second coming, he will be judge. The Old Testament prophesied both things. That God would redeem and then God would also visit. The day of the Lord would be a pretty fearful day for the nations of the world. And some confuse those two great seasons of the person and work of Jesus. His coming in salvation and his coming in judgment. We now preach Jesus as Savior. But we need to tell people. The one who taught. The one who came was welcomed on Palm Sunday. The one who rose on Resurrection Day is coming again, and he's coming in force. He's bringing his people, and he's going to make every knee bow, and every tongue confess who he is, and he's going to cause some to be departed from him forever. He's going to welcome his people into heaven. There will be a judgment day. The Bible describes this. Jesus himself describes it when he will judge the living and the dead. So we really need to know who he is. We really need to be in a right relationship with Jesus, the judge of all the earth. Paul would write in Romans chapter 2, verse 16. 
this phrase about that day. He says, on that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Romans 2, 16. Paul understood the theologian of the, of the disciples wrote and was inspired to write not only about his gospel, which brings the good news, but his gospel, which makes plain that judgment's coming and it's coming by Christ Jesus. And boys and girls, take notes. Jesus knows what's in your mind and in your heart, even though you've not spoken it, even though you haven't done it. He does know everything you've said and done, but he knows your heart as well. And when he comes, time's up. When you hear the, the sirens and the stirring, say, what's going on? And you leap to the door and you behold Jesus coming in the clouds. You had better be right with him. He will no longer be cloaked in mere humanity. He will be glorious, be surrounded by angels, coming in power to bring his kingdom in its fullness. The judge of all the earth. Paul would write to young pastor Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and by his kingdom. Paul would write to Timothy with great sobriety. The job of the pastor isn't just to make people feel good, but to tell the truth. It's a privilege to tell the truth. And not many people are telling it, but it's true. Jesus is Lord. Jesus will judge. I asked earlier if you listen to Jesus or if he's just like that big unread book on your shelf. Let me ask, if you're listening to Jesus, that's good. Are you obeying him? Are you serving him? Do you live to please him? Are you his disciple and servant? Do you obey? That's the question here. Do you obey? Or when he appears, will you stand under his eye as your judge? Oh boy, that's heavy. Let me get to the last one. The last identity of Jesus that we're going to look at this morning, and it's, it's the longest of, uh, of the three, and it's most fitting for this day. And for this, we need to turn to something John the Baptist said. You, you remember him. John the Baptist, it's recorded in the Gospel of John. A different John wrote the Gospel. And I believe the John who wrote the Gospel of John was a disciple of John the Baptist, who then joined with Jesus and later wrote the Gospel of John. There, we, there you have it. We're going to look at a very simple declaration of John the Baptist recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29. Because here, John the Baptist, the last of the great Old Testament prophets, filled with the Spirit of God, proclaims to us who Jesus is. You know how we've been answering the question, who is Jesus? First, what all the people were saying, teacher, prophet, and then we found out he's the Word of God. Then what Jesus said about himself... Now we're going to what an Old Testament prophet who was alive and saw Jesus across the hall, across the yard, inspired by the Holy Spirit. What did he say? 
about the identity of Jesus. John 1, verse 29 in God's word says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist didn't mince words. Boy, he just tell you right off the bat. And you didn't mess with him. He looked very serious in his prophet-like garments. People respected him. They were in awe of John the Baptist. John the Baptist knew what the message of the Old Testament was. And God had called him to prepare the way for the Messiah. Do you remember that? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the deserts a highway for our God. And he had the spirit of Elijah on him. And he came. He was about the same age as Jesus. He was a cousin of Jesus. And John the Baptist, called to that great work, points at Jesus and says, not once but twice, he'll repeat it, Behold the Lamb of God. So if we want to know who Jesus is, we need to know what, what do you mean, John? What do you mean? Why don't you just say Hosanna to the son of David like everybody else? Well, this was early on in the ministry as Jesus is about to call his disciples to him. This is at the heart of who Jesus is. This, I would say, is the the pinnacle of revelation of who Jesus is. It's even more important to know this than that he was a teacher. More important to know this than his prophecies about the son of man and future judgment. This is at the heart of who Jesus is. And it's at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of Christianity. That Jesus is the Lamb of God. Let's unpack that. Let's say three things about it. First, why a lamb? Why not Jesus, the the Leviathan of God, or Jesus, the bull moose of God? Why a lamb? A lot of you know your Bibles. You know the answer to that. In the economy of the Old Testament, the economy of the Jews, a lamb was typically used for sacrifice. Whether it was the Passover lamb to remind them of their flight out of Egypt at the cost of a lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the doorposts and lintels of their homes that death might pass over them and that they eat the, eat the lamb and the unleavened bread and then flee. The Passover lamb which became a picture of deliverance for thousands of years. Or, or maybe simply just the, the lamb that was brought regularly to the temple, the sacrificial system as it, as it week in and week out, week in and week out, week in and week out, lambs were brought, ox and bulls, blood offerings. When John the Baptist points at Jesus and gets our attention, he says, this is a sacrifice. This is a sacrificial lamb. John had to make that plain because of the days in which they lived. Let's step back. Do you remember the days in which they lived? What was the messianic expectation? We need a Messiah from the line of David who's going to have a sword. He's going to kick these Romans out of here. We're going to get our temple back just to ourselves. Get them out of Jerusalem. They defile us. The Jews were looking for a warrior, king, savior, Messiah. That's why they're so excited on Palm Sunday, because there are military overtones to riding in on a colt like you're a conqueror after the battle. 
and son of David. You're a king. Oh, you're going to do king stuff. You're going to really let these Romans have it. The predominant view was warrior king Messiah. And you know, I was shocked what B.B. Warfield said. He said that could almost be taken as a carnal view of the Messiah. You want the view of the Messiah that serves your agenda. And you're so focused on that that you're neglecting something else. This is, a, this is perhaps subtle. Maybe you haven't thought of this. But their focus, their obsession with getting Rome overthrown and getting political freedom and economic freedom and more money in their pocket and more liberty for their feet narrowed their view of the Messiah so that they rejected the one that God sent. I would say that's a carnal view. They so idolized one aspect, one reality of who Jesus is. Yes, he's a king. But the smackdown comes later. Warfield goes on to write, in, in, in Warfield's writing in In 1916, he originally wrote these essays. He said, meanwhile, with this view of Messiah, meanwhile, the other lines of prophetic description were neglected. And among them, most of all, that culminating in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, in which the Messiah is depicted as the righteous suffering servant of Jehovah. Isaiah 53 That's what John the Baptist is calling us to. He's ringing a klaxon. He's ringing a bell and says, people, people, this is no mere man. This is the Lamb of God. And the first point he's making is a sacrificial lamb. He's here to suffer. He's here to die. You know, many moderns and theologians only want Jesus as a teacher. Oh, we don't mind if you teach our kids about Jesus. We'll bring them to the Sunday school. They want to get all the lessons. They want to know about all the stories. And that's all they want. Or the liberation theologians and those who have social movements and who really want to uh, push change against the, the powers that be. They're going to grab Jesus the revolutionary, Jesus the radical. And so that's the one they're fixated on. They don't want to hear this identity of Jesus. Perhaps you often are uncomfortable talking about blood. We we have hymns in our hymnal about blood. How precious is the truth therein. The sacrificial lamb. You know, John the Baptist's corrective should apply to us today. I mentioned B.B. Warfield wrote in 1916. I've got another quote here. It almost knocked me out of my chair because it sounds like it's needed in 2021. He's writing about John the Baptist correcting the popular views to get to the accurate, most important view. Warfield says this. Lay aside your national passions. Your fierce chafing under the foreign yoke. Man suffers from something worse than political bondage or alien oppression, says Warfield. There is a higher deliverance than that from the dominion of the stranger. It is not a king you need so much as a redeemer. And the God of our fathers knows it. Behold, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My friends... 
God knows what we need most. We don't need to scramble for a stronger presidential candidate. We don't need to pass this or that legislation or do this or that thing that's hot on the front burner or in the headlines. As much as, I'm not neglecting our duties, but the number one is making known Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. Two more points. We need to see him as the Lamb of God because he makes a sacrifice for sin. What, what was the Lamb to do? The Lamb was to be a sacrifice, as we've already said. He did not come to be a moral example. He came to bring about expiation and propitiation. He came to put away our sin and to get us out of our guilt, to set the prisoners free, not just physically, but spiritually. And not just to set us free and cleanse us from our guilt, but to see us adopted. The whole Old Testament taught that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. What is the greatest cost a man can pay in this world? When a police officer is shot in the line of duty or a soldier on the battlefield, we say they gave their all. Their greatest sacrifice. They shed their blood. What would it mean if God himself took on a human nature so that he could shed his blood? The Lamb of God, so that he might bleed for our sins. You see, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system of shedding of blood and burning of sacrifices was really a finger pointing forward to something better, to God's own lamb who would really take away the sin of the world. You read that in Hebrews. I mentioned Hebrews. Read Hebrews. That's the sacrifice that does away with all other sacrifices. It was upon Christ Jesus our sins were laid and his blood poured out for our pardon and our cleansing. We'll have more to say about the work of the cross next Sunday, on Easter Sunday. But I want to point out the last thing that John the Baptist says here. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. What's the last part? Of the world. Whoa, that's big, says the Jewish prophet in, uh, on the shore of the River Jordan to a largely Jewish audience. They may not have liked that message. Wait, wait, wait. The Lamb of God. We're the people of God. We do the lambs. The Gentiles, they don't get in, do they? Well, the message of the Bible from the beginning has been that through Abraham and through God's godly line, through the Messiah, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the ethnicities on the face of the earth will find blessing in this one. Jesus is the hope of the world. That's the word I left out on the outline. This Jesus, this Lamb of God, don't dismiss him because you think Lamb is this little creature you can pat and it's going to die and we'll all be crying. This Lamb of God will rise in victory. Read the book of Revelation because the vision of the heavenlies sees one uh, who looks like a lamb that had been slain on the throne of heaven. He will rise. He will be, he has risen. He will ascend. He did ascend. And he will be seen in heaven. 
and glory and power. That Jesus, that Lamb of God is the hope of the world. That's the message of the Bible. Even Isaiah 53 has that that hint. It's really an understatement how by his death he will justify many. Why does it say many? It's not a quantitative statement as much as a qualitative statement. That whosoever believes in the Son of God shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Before I get to the final ending here, I want to say if Jesus is the hope of the world, don't despair so much over this world. If God the Father sent into the world Jesus his Son to be the Lamb of God for the world, everyone has access to him. We need to preach him to all the nations of the world. Don't despair for the world. God's plan is unfolding in God's time. So that measure of anxiety that we have, oh my country, what's happening? What's happening to justice? What's happening to our leaders who fall into sin? Don't panic. Don't despair. Let's take stock afresh of what God has provided in Jesus Christ. Well, how do we wrap up a beautiful thought like this about who Jesus is? We've asked and answered the question several times. I I do want to encourage you, if you now know who Jesus is, the Word of God, the divine Son of God, the Lamb of God, and you see how these all work together to provide a salvation, do not despair for yourself, but trust in Christ. Understand that there's nothing you do that contributes to your salvation. If there was a job for me to do, I would be in trouble. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, said the old Christian hymn. To know Jesus for who he is, to believe him and obey him and trust him, is salvation and life, life everlasting. In closing, I wanted to mention a song. We talked about questions. Uh, the, the question men are most consumed with is who am I? The Bible tells us who is God. But I think one of the greatest worship songs written by a Christian band in recent years was this song by Casting Crowns, Who Am I? I'd love to be able to sing it or even play it, but here's just a sampling of some of the lyrics. You can check it out. I posted it on my Facebook yesterday so you can see it. I haven't heard it in a couple years, but I I think it's my favorite Christian praise song. Still brings me to tears. This is The the lyrics get to the point here. Uh, It starts out in the first verse. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt, Who am I that the bright morning star would choose to light the way for my ever-wandering heart? And then the transition before the refrain is where the power is. They sing, not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. And it goes on with a burst of praise for God. Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done, because of who you are. Do you know Jesus? Do you obey Jesus and trust him? Then rejoice. 
Rejoice, rejoice, believers. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the Bible, which gives us an accurate picture of who Jesus is. Father, may we read the Bible and see Jesus there. Give us eyes to perceive him and to know him better. Father, we do pray for any who hear this preaching today, who turn to your word today, who are asking who Jesus is. Make known to them the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we pray that men and women and boys and girls near and far will know and love Jesus and be with us in glory forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.